You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I am Garrett Ashley Mullet. This is June 5th, 2021, a Saturday morning in Greeley, Colorado, and I am recording Season 3's Episode 71, Episode 136 of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. Today we're going to talk about a very, very emotionally loaded topic. We're going to talk about feminism and the men's rights movement. I have a little bit of trepidation as to how some people will feel about this topic and my treatment of it. But I am all the more determined to talk about it because I don't think that's proper for other people potentially getting offended to keep us from trying to figure out what the truth is. I think we make good decisions when we know better and understand better what the truth is, but we can't act on the truth And we can't know and understand the truth better if we're not willing to be honest, if we're not willing to talk about the truth even because we're afraid of what people might think. How then are we going to live based on the truth? So we're going to dive right in. First of all, I want to preface and introduce the topic in relation to two videos that were sent to me this past week. I watched both videos and This topic and these videos, they very much relate to some other videos that I watched in recent weeks, one being a Q&A and um, discussion and, and presentation that the author of the book, Why Men Hate Going to Church, did in Sydney, Australia a number of years ago. I think it was seven years ago. I could be wrong. I could be conflating that video with another video, the other video that I have in mind right now, which was a sermon by Paul Washer. I think the one by Paul Washer actually was just from this year, from the Fellowship Conference for 2021. But I think the the video with the author of Why Men Hate Going to Church, that actually was about seven years old when I came across it, or at least it was uploaded to YouTube about seven years ago. But the Paul Washer video, I did an episode on here recently, and I probably offended some people. I'm just going to guess. Anytime I'm talking about something important and I'm being honest, I'm probably offending some people, even as other people are saying, ah, yes, okay, that's interesting. And, you know, hmm, I don't know what I think about that. I'll have to just kind of chew on it, right? And the former kind of people that are offended and they just turn off this podcast This podcast wasn't going to be for them, and I'm sure there's a a lovely cartoon somewhere that they can go watch if that is more to their liking. Maybe there isn't, though, because I guess Looney Tunes is offensive now. So even Looney Tunes might trigger them, but I am not going to cater to the people that are easily offended, who get triggered over every little thing, who believe in microaggressions as some kind of a... Willy Wonka's golden ticket whereby they get to have whatever they want and get you to stop talking about whatever they don't want you to talk about and get you to stop thinking whatever they don't want you to think. We're not going to cater those 
cater to those folks. We're just not going to cater to those folks. The latter kind of person who's just going to say, well, you know what, let, let me think about that. I want to mull it over. A little pun there. I like that phrase, mull it over, because my last name is Mullet. So this was meant to be that I was going to make people think. That's one of the biggest criticisms I've received over my adult life and from my teenage years to the present is that I make people think. And some people love that fact about me is that I make people think. Some people don't want to think that hard, and so they avoid me like the plague. So the people that want to avoid me, go ahead. That's fine. On your way, as you were. Don't let me interrupt your day. But the people that like to think can stay tuned, and we'll, we'll try to think about things. The Paul Washer sermon really bothered me. If you want to hear more on that one specifically, listen to episode 130, recorded May 29th, 2021. The title of that episode of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show is Reverse Sexism in American Churches. You can also go back. Uh, let's see, where is it? Why men hate going to church. I know I recorded that episode. Looks like May 13th, 2021. Why men hate going to church is another episode. It's 116 of this podcast. But those videos, they were interesting. They dealt more uh, specifically with how Christianity relates to male-female issues, husband-wife issues. I want to talk about here a couple of videos that are more broad, and they're more, uh, you know, the secular world trying to grapple with these male and female issues. And to my surprise, pushing back on feminism from a fight fire with fire sort of a standpoint. That's the way I interpret the men's rights movement is two can play that game. I am not embracing the men's rights movement and all that it entails, just to be clear. I myself am responding to this one video, MGTOW, in 14 minutes, which I'll post in the description for this podcast. I'm responding to that the same way that ideally my listeners are going to respond to me. Hey, that's interesting. I've never thought about that before. Let me chew on it for a little bit. I'll get back to you. That's how I'm responding to MGTOW in 14 minutes, this YouTube video, and also the documentary, The Red Pill, which you can find free with advertisements on Amazon.com. Amazon Prime has it posted up, which is somewhat surprising to me, but you can watch that video, watch that documentary, and you'll understand better what I'm getting at. But both of those videos, suffice to say, for this episode of The Geared Ashley Mullet Show, those two videos, the one documentary, the one little 14-minute summary of MGTOW, Men Going Their Own Way, I'm just going to jump right into talking about and addressing. The big thing that stands out to me with regards to the men's rights movement is that the language being employed sounds an awful lot like feminism. It sounds an awful lot like feminism being turned on itself, like somebody got a hold of that two-edged sword and they said, ah, we're going to use this to advocate for the way that men are being oppressed. We'll embrace the general idea that men uh, are oppressed the same way that feminists embrace the idea 
that women are oppressed. Not perfectly. There is a little bit of pushback to where I think they're saying at the very end of the Red Pill documentary, this is not a male problem, right? Men are not the problem the way that feminists are saying they are. People are the problem, and men and women are equal opportunity offenders. In any group of men, you might have some men that are violent and abusive and oppressive and manipulative and awful and unfair. And you also, here's the shocker, here's the the big contentious claim, you also can have women who are those things. You can have men who are violent towards women, but guess what, folks? You can have women who are violent towards men too. If that is a controversial statement, for the life of me, I can't figure out why. Why would that be so controversial? If we got to the feminist dream, if we achieved it as a society where men and women are equal, and I'm not saying we should get there, not saying that we have gotten there, but let's suppose for the sake of argument, hypothetically, we got there. Would it not stand to reason then that women would have not just all of the good things that men have, that men supposedly are hoarding and the patriarchy is withholding from women, would it not stand a reason that you would also have women possessing all of the bad things that men have? I think so. I think that makes sense. Unless there's a belief in the innate superiority of women to men, it stands to reason that women are capable of being all of the things that men can be in the bad ways and not just in the good ways. Women who are feminists will embrace the positive side of that. Anything you can do, I can do better in a good sense, right? Anything you can do from an achievement standpoint, from an accomplishment standpoint, from a career development standpoint, being the CEO of a company, being the president of the United States, being a senator, being an entrepreneur, whatever, anything you can do, I can do better or I can do as well. Right? Let's make it a more modest statement. Some women definitely believe anything you can do, I can do better. They think they are innately superior to men by nature, and we'll deal with them later. But let's just say that's the broad, big idea of feminism. Anything you can do, I can do as well, men. Why would that only apply to the good things, the supposedly good things? Also, how do we know what the good things are? Right? At a certain point, the secular approach to gender and to human being, and what I mean by human being is the state of being a human on earth, existing, having life, and going about whatever business you're going to be going about. The more we deconstruct that and we say, this is artificial, and that is a social construct, and this is just tradition, and that is just the patriarchy, and this is just whatever. The more we say things like that, the more we are going to have a hard time stopping and saying what is objectively good and what is objectively bad. But unconsciously, without being able to help it, we believe in this thing called the natural law. C.S. Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity, I think he does a fine job treating the subject, where he refutes the claims of the atheist 
who says there is no God by saying, if there's no God, then how do you account for this conviction you have in your soul that there is a right and wrong, that there's a universal standard of right and wrong? Why is it that when we're treated unfairly, we immediately, automatically, unconsciously appeal to the standard of right and wrong as if the other person who wronged us knows it too? Why do we appeal to fairness as if it's an objective thing, assuming that the people around us know what is and is not fair objectively if we don't believe that there is some source for a universal standard, an objective standard of good and evil? If somebody says they don't believe in objective truth, objective goodness, objective reality, watch them contradict themselves in action when somebody wrongs them, when somebody mistreats them. The feminist movement and also the men's rights movement seem to be two sides of the same coin. People who are embracing the secular explanation for where we came from, who are we, who are we as men, who are they as women, they're embracing the secular naturalistic explanation for these things. And yet they cannot escape appealing to some objective standard of fairness, some objective standard of goodness, some objective standard of right. The whole idea that you would have a men's rights movement or a women's rights movement implies that there is such a thing as a right. You have a right to do X, Y, or Z. Is that only positive? Is that only in the sense that you have the right to do and be all these wonderful things that we're going to praise you for. You have the right to be praised when you do a good job, when you're a good little boy and a good little girl. Is that all there is to it? Or does the right exist objectively outside of your head, outside of your own feelings, outside of your own emotions, outside of your own ideology, outside of your own biases? Does the right transcend us? And does it therefore come from a transcendent source? That's C.S. Lewis' contention. That's my contention. That is what the Bible states implicitly when not explicitly all throughout from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation. There is such a thing as right and there is such a thing as wrong. And wrong is defined as whatever does not comport with what is right. There is righteousness, which is living in right standing with God internally in our hearts and in our minds, but also externally in our actions, in our words, in how we live. The one is downstream of the other. How we act and what we say is downstream of what we think and what we feel and what we allow to have in our internal world, what we embrace as far as ideas go as far as philosophy goes, as far as emotional states, what we pursue, what our goals are, what seems good to us. When what seems good to us is in alignment with what God says is good, that's what the Bible refers to as righteousness. When it doesn't align and we're okay with that and we embrace that misalignment, in fact, we insist on it, that is unrighteousness. That is iniquity. That is folly. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God, according to Proverbs. And so, yes, there's grace for those that repent, but repentance is 
all about righteousness. It's about turning away from a misalignment with God's standard and what God says is true and his promises and his character and a right relationship with him. We're turning away from being off the tracks and we're turning toward what God says to turn toward. We're turning toward God and reorienting ourselves. There would not be a feminist movement and there would not be a men's rights movement and there would not be countless other human rights flavors that focus on special interest groups and identity politics. There would not be these things if there was righteousness because you wouldn't have persons having their rights, real or imagined, either trampled or being perceived as being trampled on. When we understand what our rights are in relation to God and our fellow man, and when the community around us also is in agreement, we don't have people abusing one another. We don't have people trampling on one another. We don't have people trying to defraud and abuse and take advantage of one another. But here's the real world, and that is over there, and we are here. And where we are right now is not that place where we instinctively, automatically embrace what God says we should be about and who we should be and our purpose and who he is. We don't automatically embrace God's purposes for us and his promises and his commands. We don't live according to wisdom and we don't live in a righteous way automatically. We sin. That's the narrative of Christianity is that we are sinful we're fallen, and that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Grace cannot come before an acknowledgement that you need grace. Why do you need grace? Grace is unmerited favor. It is a forgiveness of debts. Why do we have a debt? We have a debt because we've transgressed against the creator, our creator, in whose image we're made. So at the core of the men's rights movement and at the core of feminism, there are some true claims. There is truth in their complaints. Men can be oppressive and abusive and unfair to women. Women can be oppressive and abusive and unfair towards men. So feminists and men's rights activists, they'll find grounds to be discontented with the state of affairs in society. I would bet you that even the men who don't go into their personal backstory in the Red Pill documentary, I would bet you even the men that don't get into the weeds on had a messy divorce and this woman tricked them into getting her pregnant and then she used that child as a manipulative tool to control them. I'll bet you every one of those men's rights activists has stories of being mistreated, being abused, being verbally abused, sometimes physically abused by women in their lives. So do they have reason to be discontented? to be frustrated, to be upset, to feel grieved, to feel as though they've been injured and wronged? Sure, probably. Join the crowd though, right? So do we all.
I mean, where does it stop if we embrace discontentedness? I guess that's what I'm trying to get at. I just started Jeremiah Burroughs' book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Just started it this week. Me and Paul Pavlik, we're going to read through it a chapter at a time. We're going to discuss it. It was his recommendation that uh, we start reading some Puritans because he likes the Puritans. I had never read the Puritans. He said, you know, it'd be fun. I'd, I could use some Puritan writing in my life right now, and it'd be fun to talk about it with you and get your take on some of these things. And so I'm I'm on board with that. I think that's great. I'm looking forward to it. But what I notice, even just through the first chapter of Burroughs' book, is that the big idea is how we relate in our hardships to God. Do we, as Job's wife says, as she advises him in the midst of his trials, do we curse God and die? Do we shake our fist at God and accuse him? And are we bitter towards God saying, essentially, you messed up? If we do, then we actually, in that moment, in that frame of mind, are putting our judgment above God's judgment. We are putting our authority above God's authority. If we presume to judge God, then we are guilty of the same thing that got Lucifer thrown out of heaven with a third of the heavenly hosts. We're guilty of the same thing that gets Peter rebuked, although he comes back, right? He turns away from this wicked attitude, obviously, and repents of it. But he gets, re- he gets rebuked by Jesus at one point. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, when Peter is trying to tell Jesus what he will and will not do in relation to Jerusalem, going to Jerusalem, being arrested, being flogged, being crucified. So also, if we're in the midst of trial, it's fine to admit, hey, this is a trial. If we are grieved, it's okay to say, hey, this is grief. This is upsetting. This is painful. This is disappointing. This is frustrating. I don't like the way that this is going. It's okay to acknowledge that this is not the way that it's supposed to be. That's not in contradiction to what God has said. God has said this is not the way that it's supposed to be. So you're not telling God anything that he doesn't know, and you're not contradicting. You're not getting in an arm wrestling context uh, with the most high if you say this is broken. Well, yeah, it's broken. It was good in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth, and he created on days one through six. And then after he had made man in his image, Before the fall, before sin entered the world, God looked at everything that he had made and he said it was very good. He said it was good days one through five. And at the end of day six, he says it is very good after he creates man in his image, male and female, he created them. But that's just it, right? Why did God create mankind, male and female? The short answer is I don't know, except I do know because God wanted to. We know that God wanted to, and so he did. And that's one of the privileges of being himself, is that he gets to do what he wants. He wanted to create us male and female in the beginning, in his image. Different, distinct, similar in a lot of ways, but different. He creates Adam first. Why does he create Adam first? I don't know, except I do know, because he wanted to. He wanted to create man first, and then... After Adam had gone around naming animals and could not find somebody suitable, and you can say that's a fairy tale, but it's in God's word. 
I think God's more credible than we are. After, in this not fairy tale, Adam names the animals that God has created, that Adam is now supposed to be the caretaker for, and he's supposed to rule and reign over as God's ambassador, as God's uh, type of regent or representative on earth, his image bearer, his reflector. After Adam names the animals, he finds no suitable mate for himself. And only at that point when Adam realizes his need and is lonely, God looks at the situation and says, it's not good. It's not good. The first thing in the whole Bible, the first time God ever says something is not good is when Adam is alone on the earth without a helper. So then God says he's going to make a helpmeet suitable for Adam. And he does. And he puts Adam into a deep, deep sleep. It takes a rib from his side and fashions a woman. And when Adam comes to, when he wakes up from anesthesia after this operation is complete, there is this naked woman, this beautiful naked woman, our great, 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 Here's this naked woman who is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, a helpmeet suitable for him. And so Adam names Eve. He names all of the animals and he names Eve. God names Adam, Adam names Eve, and when they have children, they name their children. But you have Adam and Eve naked in the garden, roaming about. Everything's very good at the end of the sixth day very good. It's not good for the man to be alone, but once Adam and Eve are on the scene, before sin enters the world, God looks at it and he says, it's very good. The problem that I see, the biggest problem I have, the biggest concern I have about feminism and the men's rights movement and this MGTOW, especially men going their own way, the biggest problem that I have is that there is a discontentedness at the root of both of these movements and their adherence. There's a discontentedness with the opposite gender. I think in a lot of these women's cases and a lot of these men's cases, there's an inability to get along with the other gender, and there's a bitterness. There's a embarrassment. There's a bitterness that they haven't found love They've been looking for love in all the wrong places or they're inherently selfish and they don't want to consider another person. They don't want to love another person. They don't want to serve another person. They want to serve themselves. You're getting in the way of me fulfilling my ambitions and my happiness is my highest goal. But more to the point, if we really dig, 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 there's a discontentedness with God's created order at the root of feminism, at the root of women's empowerment. At the root of MGTOW, there's a discontentedness. I watched this MGTOW in 14 minutes, and it's very evolutionary in its narrative. As the theory goes, our ancient forebears, who were cavemen, had to be strong and assertive in order to defend their caveman tribe from rivals, from neighboring tribes. 
if a raiding party from a neighboring tribe comes in and you don't have testosterone and aggression and arm strength and upper body strength and you can't wield a spear or a club or whatever, then guess who is going to carry off your woman and kill you and your guy friends and your children probably too. Guess who's going to carry off the women of your tribe, including your women? That guy over there who does have those things, who is assertive, who is strong, who is able, capable. He's stronger. And the women, according to the theory, the women who insist, I am not going along with this. You killed my husband. You killed my brothers. You killed my father. I want nothing to do with you to the men of the neighboring tribe who've just killed you and all the other males of your tribe, that woman might become a slave or she might be killed. She might not be allowed to live, in which case her children are, are murdered by the neighboring tribe, the men of the neighboring tribe. She's killed. She does not pass on her genes. Now, another woman in the tribe might say, you know what, as long as you feed me, clothe me, house me, take care of me, protect me. I'll be your woman instead to the neighboring tribe man who just killed you and all of your buddies in your tribe. So then that woman who's willing to transfer her loyalty, she is impregnated by this more assertive, more dominant man from the other tribe. And that becomes the next generation. And if she has a girl and that girl that she gives birth to is going to be taught to be that way, to be willing to transfer loyalty to the stronger, more dominant male. If it's a boy, that boy is going to be raised to be strong, violent, assertive, aggressive, take charge, or else be exterminated. That's the theory as far as it goes in terms of evolutionary biology, that this is a genetic thing. This is something our ancestors down through the millennia have embraced just to survive. There's not even a hint within that narrative of a biblical worldview. There's not even a hint of it. Where is there in that any acknowledgement that God created male and female separate, distinct, that God created Adam first and he created Eve afterwards, that God indicates throughout the text throughout the scriptures that the man is to be the head of the house, the head of his tribe, the head of his family, the head of his community, and the woman is to submit herself to her husband. There's no acknowledgement within that. There's no acknowledgement of the curse that God pronounces to Eve after she takes the forbidden fruit, gives some to her husband at the behest of the serpent, who is the devil, who is Satan, who's this fallen creature who's been kicked out of heaven. There's no acknowledgement that God says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband to rule over him, but he will rule over you. There's not even a hinting that that is at the core here, a sinful attitude towards the created order, a rejection of the created order. Just like God says, you can eat of any fruit of any tree in the garden, except, oh, what's that? Eat that fruit? Okay. Did God really say... Right, so it's the same here. It's the same here with the created order when men and women are in marriage, when they're in relationship. God says, 
here's how this is supposed to go. And rebellious people enshrined in their ideologies and in their traditions and in their social constructs a rejection of God's created order. And then you get the counter movement at a certain point because it becomes apparent this doesn't work, right? Women running ramshot over men and claiming that they're being oppressed and all the while that they're screaming bloody murder in a man's face as he's holding a sign because he's a men's rights activist there to demonstrate for men's rights. She's screaming bloody murder in his face, two inches from his face. She's not being oppressed. Let me tell you that, brother. She's not being oppressed. Between the two of them, if somebody's the oppressor and somebody's being oppressed, she's the oppressor and he is being oppressed. That guy looks like he wants to go hide under a rock. Like there's anywhere, there, there, anywhere on earth he would rather be than right there being spoken to the way that she's speaking to him. She's verbally abusing him. She's dressing him down. She's disrespecting him for the whole world to see, calling him every nasty thing she can think of, insulting him, degrading him. She's verbally abusing him for us all to see. Not having a rational discussion, not listening and then speaking, not speaking calmly and then listening to the response, not thinking through this together as equals. No, no. He is vermin. He is beneath her contempt. He deserves to be tread underfoot. And she is going to show him who wears the pants in this scenario, in this situation. That is a rejection of God's created order. Not that she needs to submit to some strange man, you know, like all women submit to all men. But there's a respect piece because he is created in God's image. So also, if this were that guy showing up at a feminist rally... Whatever the the validity or lack thereof in that woman's claims, if she's just standing there, she's just trying to listen to somebody give a speech or give a talk, he might hate what she represents to him. He might hate the speech that she's there to hear. He might hate the topic. He might hate the ideology that she's embraced and the movement that she's a part of. That does not give him a right to just walk up and punch her and the nose. It doesn't give him a right to walk up and start screaming profanities in her face and telling her to shut up and cursing at her. That doesn't give him a right. Why? Because she's created in God's image. God says not to treat people that way. If you're treating people that way, you are expressing a profound discontentedness with God's created order, starting with God's authority over you. That's first and foremost. Everything else is downstream from that. But downstream from that, you're discontented with the idea that there are other people, other males and females of mankind who are created in God's image to whom you have some responsibility. You don't like that. You're discontented with it. You reject that. You're rebelling against that for all to see with impunity, all the while claiming you're actually the aggrieved party. No, that just doesn't work. Here's what does work. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, full stop. That is a position of authority that you and I and everybody else cannot vie with. God created us. He created everything else. That gives him authority over all these things. That gives him ownership over all these things. Everything belongs to God. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Secondarily, 
God said it was very good after he made mankind in his image. Male and female, he made it. He created them. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Be fruitful and multiply. Be productive. Be reproductive. That's how you multiply, by the way. You can't multiply if you're not being reproductive. And you can't support this reproduced humanity unless you're being productive, unless you're working, unless you're endeavoring to harvest food and make shelter and make clothing. And Proverbs 31 talks about an excellent wife. Plenty of verses talk about a man's responsibility. If a man does not provide for the needs of his own household, he is worse than an infidel, we read in the New Testament. Men have a responsibility to be providers. If you don't like it, tough. I'm sorry, cry me a river. You don't like that men are supposed to be providers, get over it. Men also should be protecting. Men are physically stronger, and that's also just a part of man having headship and authority. You protect your people. You're not being oppressed if men disproportionately are doing the dangerous jobs, are going off to serve in war. You're not being oppressed. That's not evidence of your oppression. Nope. Now, it is evidence of the hypocrisy and the self-serving nature of the feminist movement that there's this little clip that's shown in the Red Pill documentary of Hillary Clinton being asked whether she supports the advice of some of the military leadership here in the U.S. to require women to sign up for selective service, a.k.a. the draft. We haven't had a draft in a while. It's been several decades. But if we had a major conflict with China and Russia and Iran and North Korea, it might become necessary to have a draft. But women, even if they want to be allowed in combat roles in the military, even if they want to be allowed to be, to be voted in to be the president of the United States, they don't necessarily want to be drafted into the military. Well, wait a second. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Why do you think it's legitimate for women to be in combat roles, but you don't think it's legitimate for women to be signed up for the draft, to be drafted potentially? Why do, why do you think you can have your cake and eat it too? Equality on my terms when I want it is not equality. Equality when it's convenient to me is not equality. That's supremacy. That's domination. That's you actually wearing the pants. And that's what feminism is actually about. <clears throat> feminism is not about equality anymore. Radical third-wave feminism is not about women not being oppressed and not being beaten by their husbands and not being cheated out of their property and not being disrespected. Feminism now in our day is about women asserting dominance over men, period. No pun intended, but plain and simple. Women want to assert dominance, and that's been true ever since the fall. Your desire will be for your husband to rule over him, but he will rule over you. That's what God said to Eve. That's what God said. That's not me saying that. That's God saying that. But you see it. It doesn't take long studying feminism to see it. There's double standards. Now that the shoe is on the other foot, equity requires that men take some lumps for a while until we're tired, until we're tired of beating on them. And women, women are allowed 
to be physically abusive to men. Did you know that? Did you know that women in our society are allowed to physically assault men? And if men defend themselves, men get in trouble. Men get arrested. Men get confronted. Men are not allowed to defend themselves. Women are allowed to assault men. Men are not allowed to defend themselves. That is what feminism is really about. I am very much opposed to a husband pushing, shoving, punching, kicking, throwing things at his wife. It's wrong, period. No ifs, ands, or buts, it's wrong. You don't, that's not what authority means, right? You are a really crappy authority if you think that's how you're supposed to exercise authority, that's how you need to exercise authority in order to be respected, listened to, heard in your home. If you think you've got to throw things at your wife, if you think you've got to bully her and intimidate her and manhandle her, you are incompetent. In addition to being abusive and out of line and abusing this weaker vessel that you're supposed to give honor to according to the New Testament, in addition to not serving her and not loving her as Christ loved the church and laid his life down for her, you're incompetent. But, but, so also, if a woman is slapping, punching, kicking, throwing things at her husband, verbally assaulting him, getting in his face, screaming bloody murder, accusing him, cursing at him, trying to destroy his dignity, his self-esteem, his respect in the eyes of his children, in the eyes of other people, trying to humiliate him, that is evil. It's evil. And the fact that feminism has created a climate in which men are not able to defend themselves in those circumstances is also evil. I am not sold on the whole premise of the men's rights movement, but they have some legitimate concerns. I am opposed to feminism because I have seen far too much havoc wreaked by women who were claiming to be oppressed, who were claiming that they were going to be respected, all the while treating their receiving respect from other people as a one-way street, where everybody else has a responsibility to respect them, especially the men, especially the men. But if you're in the workplace and you get in a conflict with a woman, as soon as she plays the sexist card, you're toast. You're done. Your number's up. You are gone doesn't matter whether you said something that was sexist or inappropriate or lewd or whatever. The very fact that you might get in a disagreement means you will not win. You cannot win. If you win, you lose. Why is that? Because she can claim sexism. Because she can claim that she's being oppressed. She's being discriminated against. And then it's over for you. Whatever the thing was that you were thinking was important, all of a sudden pales in comparison to the fact that your career might be on the line. It is on the line, actually, because there's a double standard. You can't have your cake and eat it too, feminists. Feminist men and women, by the way. Because there's these men that I just cannot stand. I cannot stand feminist men. They make me nauseous. These feminist men who are trying to curry favor with women in their lives by 
embracing and repeating and parroting uncritically all the claims of feminism. Shaking their heads, wagging their heads back and forth. They look like very dramatic and poor imitations of women, of the worst sort of women. You needed a father in your life, young man. You apparently did not have a strong father figure showing you how to be a man. And so now this is the closest thing you've got is these strong women who've insisted on wearing the pants in your life, who now you, without thinking, are going to champion. If anybody offends them, upsets them, you're like their attack dog. Let me at them, right? I'm going to get them. Everybody calm down. What's at the root of this as the problem is our rejection of what God says about his created order, maleness and femaleness. The LGBT business, that's downstream, right? Before there was a problem with the LGBTQ movement and transgenderism, and now it's Pride Month. It should be Humility Month. It should be repentance, put on your sackcloth and ashes, and pray for the nation month. But it's Pride Month. Before it was Pride Month, before we had all these hand-wringing sessions over the normalization of pedophilia on Netflix and whether it's really worth canceling our Netflix subscription because there are some good shows on there. Before all of that, it was a problem for our ancestors and for the ancestors of these ideological movements. It was a problem that God created everything, the heavens and the earth in the beginning, that God created man in his image, male and female, he created them. It was a problem that God had a purpose for us and had instructed us how then to live. It was a problem that God told us how to treat one another and how to relate to his creation, how to relate to ourselves, how to relate to him, how to relate to the world around us. That was a problem. They didn't like that. They rejected it. So lo and behold, things stop working properly. They stop working correctly the way that they're supposed to, the way that they were designed to. At a certain point, if you want this toy to be fixed, you've got to take it back to the manufacturer. You've got to take it back to its maker. Ask them to repair it. That's repentance. So moving on now, I need to wrap this up. I need to close out this episode. Believe it or not, I'm planning on a another podcast, Lord willing, later this morning, maybe in an uh, hour and a half or or so, and I'm going to do a podcast, an On the Rocks podcast episode with Micah Hirschberger. We're going to talk more about these issues. We're going to discuss male-female issues, feminism, the men's rights movement, men going their own way movement, marriage. How is marriage uh, being portrayed and how is it being lived out? And is it worth it, right? Is it worth it? Is marriage worth it? Is it worth all the trouble trying to figure out how to live peaceably with one another, and how is the church relating to these things? Is the church helping, or is the church just going with the flow and making passivity and complicity sound very spiritual? What does God's word say? We'll get into that. If not this morning, then soon. So look forward to that. Keep an eye out for On the Rocks podcast with Micah Hirschberger. I will be a guest on there. I'm a frequent guest on there. We'll talk about it. But for now... Thanks for listening to this episode 
Let me know what you think, if I pushed your buttons, if I triggered you, if uh, you think I was out of line, if I wasn't quite right, according to what God's word says, according to the truth and good taste. Let me know so I can be more correct. I'm not uh, a one-way street where I tell everybody else to repent and change their wicked ways and their attitudes are bad and all that, and nobody can say that kind of stuff to me. I need to hear that sometimes just as much as other people need to hear it sometimes. So reach out, let me know. If you've got more to add, that would be helpful. But for now, I'm going to go. Thanks for listening, as always. Till next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.